0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the newest episode of Circuit 42. I'm your host, Ian, and I'm here with special guest and animation director, all-around animation wizard and all-around cool guy, uh, Kevin Altieri. So for those five people out there, those poor sad souls of the world who don't know who you are, who are you <laughs> and what do you do?
1: Um, Kevin Altieri, hi, everyone. Um, I'm... Uh... Well, Predominantly, I guess you'd call me an animation director, but I'm basically just a geek fanboy who grew up and, uh, started, uh, and just drew all my life. And I'm still drawing and still creating cartoons and animation and, uh, comics and things like that.
0: So. Yeah. Well- <laughs> Uh, for for me personally, I know a lot of people. Like one of the uh, one of the things I most rec- I've I most immediately recognized of your work was your work on Batman the Animated Series. Specifically, when I bought the DVDs and I started seeing this name like over and over on a bunch of my favorite episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, so with Batman the Animated Series, leading into Batman: Master of the Phantasm, how did that how did that start? Because that's that's a big assignment. That's pretty awesome.
1: Uh, which you mean, uh, Batman, the animated series overall? Yes. Oh, well, I mean, I, I worked in, um, I worked my way up. I started the first animation work I did was at Deke. And, uh, that was actually where a lot of people that worked on Batman started. Well, I, I mean, they started with me. Everyone probably had jobs earlier than that. All of my work prior to that was on, uh, science fiction movies, all those cheap science fiction movies from the 80s. Like, I worked briefly <laughs> on uh, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, um, movies for uh, Dave Allen, and um, movies like Megaforce for InterVision, and, uh, you know, all the, just basically special effects movies. And um, that led to me working, because I always was an animation fan, ever since I was a kid. And I didn't know whether I wanted to be a stop motion animation guy or whether I wanted to be an animation animation guy. I mean I was happy with both. And I ended up um when I saw you remember Inspector Gadget?
0: Oh yeah. I used to watch that was I used to watch as a little <laughs> kid. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was I was I was pretty much an adult when that came out, but I really liked it. And uh DEEK was a French Japanese company that opened up in Los Angeles. And I literally walked in one day I couldn't never go to animation school. You know, I never learned animation. Um, but I loved it and I didn't know who Miyazaki was, but I had all of his film books like Castle Cagliostro and things like that at that time. And I was a big fan of his. <laughs> and so I would and I would uh, basically based my uh, storyboarding style or you know, on Miyazaki. He was like my guru, so to speak, even though I didn't know him. And I Learned that there was a Japanese French studio opening up in Los Angeles and I went to Studio City and I went inside there and uh, got a job as a storyboard artist. Basically, if you could, they would pay you for, you know, they would pay you for the whole storyboard, but you needn't get the storyboard done in a week. Oh, wow. And after working in live action, I could actually, I could actually could work that fast back then. I was a young man. I could work pretty fast, but it was there at the same time. It was there that me, uh, like Dan Reba, uh, John Calmet, who did a lot of the background painting for uh, Batman. The, uh, animated the backgrounds series.
0: were so good on that show.
1: Um, oh, yeah. 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 No, they were, they were awesome. And, uh, and uh, well, let's see, John Calmet, uh, Ted Blackman, who was the art director for Batman the Animated Series. He was also over Teague. And this was all mm, 10 years prior To anything going on with uh, Warner Brothers animation at that time. So, with that experience, when, um, and Bruce Tim actually worked at Deke for a while. Although, I mean, he worked on Cops, another show that I was a director on. You know, I worked my way up from storyboard artist, and because I worked so well with the Japanese directors, I worked my way up to being a director. And then uh, after Deke, I went to Disney Features, and after Disney Features, I was doing comic books, and then I got a phone call from Bruce Timm because they were looking for people who could do action-adventure, which at that time, 90, that was like 91, I yeah,
0: guess? Yeah, 91, 92. Because 90, production would have started in 1991, yeah, so, and then the show premiered in 92.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it was early, 90, like 91, um, about that time after I was done with uh, Disney – um and I was doing comics, I got a phone call from Bruce. He's saying, yeah, we're, you know, Ben and, oh, and Brad Rader, another person, other guy that we was a storyboard artist with over at uh, Deke. Brad actually, I think, told them because he was interviewing with them to do storyboards. And they said, oh, you got to talk to Kevin. You remember Kevin, don't you? And it's like Bruce is like, yeah, I remember Kevin, called me up and uh they I was kind of thinking that it was going to be another goofy Tiny Toons take on Batman, but they showed me the promo that they did, him and Eric Radomsky, and I was sold instantly, you know. But back then, and then then I got in contact. Of course, Brad was already on board, and I got in contact with Dan Reba, and he was like, oh, yeah, and Mike Gogan, another guy that I knew from Deke, and got my and Mike Gogan came over and uh John Calmet and Ted Blackton was already there as the art director. And uh and Richie Chavez, another great uh artist, he was that we got over to uh to work with us. So it's like it was like it was kinda like people there was not many people who could do any kind of action adventure work back then. Yeah. Um and I think I've just ran through the names of almost all of the people who could,
0: you know. And even even now, it's kind of difficult, and you can see that in a lot of the quote-unquote action cartoons that come out in Western animation, where we've gone from, like, the Thundercat series that came out in 2013, the one by Dan Norton, to the Thundercat series mm-hmm. now that just looks like a weird wannabe Teen Titans gal. And I'm like, what happened? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, you and... um, And that that's something... I dare I say that's something where I have an advantage I think of, I think of it as an advantage is that um I don't have the ability to do cartoons and look at cartoons objectively um I I'm completely involved you know it's like while you're drawing it and while you're while you're directing, while you're drawing, um, you're living the moment. You're with the character, you're there. And even if it's a goofy cartoon, you know, you don't just step back and say, hey, look how crazy this drawing is. The second you do that, and I think that's like a fault that a, a lot of people doing cartoons now have, is that they they they're kind of intellectually approaching humor or adventure or whatever it is you're drawing, but they're like removed from the uh, final product. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, it's like it's they're, a, they're, they're, almost they're self, like, overly self-conscious.
1: Yeah, and you end up kind of and the audience kind of ends up feeling like they're being sneered at, like oh you pathetic little fanboys, fangirls. Yeah, you know here here here's the thing that'll make you chuckle, and they throw it out there. Whereas if I ain't laughing at the joke, it doesn't leave my desk. Yeah. You know, if that makes sense to you and your audience.
0: <laughs> no, it totally, it totally makes sense because you shouldn't. Um, well, cause I remember there, I remember there was an interview with you and a couple of the other Batman members, Batman, um, Batman team, where you basically said, you're not really making the show for kids. You're making the show for you, but you're also making it for the audience. And that's what, And the problem is that a lot of people don't think that way. A lot of people think, Oh, I'm making the show for this audience so I can dumb it down for them. Yeah.
1: Well, uh, it's like, as I've grown older, um, like there's one thing about being, I mean, especially back when I was, when I was a kid, um, (laughs) boy, you had to hunt down using the TV guide. You had to hunt down movies and you had to hunt down cartoons. Um, when I was, I think seven, and things like Star Trek showed up and things like on TV and uh Johnny Quest especially. Like I was crazy for Johnny Quest. It was like they've made a cartoon for me. And the very next year, no Johnny Quest. And then they canceled Star Trek. I'm like, what? Well, what well, <laughs> this isn't. You're right. like, yeah. what is and happening? You, you, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, it's like and and the thing is, I think my point is, as I've gotten older, I am, you know, I studied, and um, I've taken out the books, and I study Hitchcock. I watch Hitchcock. Uh, he's a genius filmmaker. I love Stanley Kubrick, you yeah. know. Um, it's like Clockwork Orange, 2001 A Space Odyssey. I saw it when I was eight. Oh, and, wow. I mean, I completely understood it. <laughs> I remember driving home and explaining it to my dad, you know said, so, well, you know, it's like, so he got old and it's like, no, no, he's in a, he's in like a prison. That wasn't a prison. No, that, they're taking care of him, but it's a prison, you know, it's like he, he he's not really a prisoner, but they're watching him. What, didn't you hear those, didn't you hear the aliens talking? <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, because, you know, they were represented by all those like st- strange noises in the background. And, and, uh, and I, and I loved everything that Stanley Kubrick did. And I just, you know, I'm just, I love Samuel Fuller movies. And I like, you know, it's like, as you get older, and it's like in the, in the movies that you, I fall in love with are more and more intense. But having said that, I still completely enjoy what I loved as an eight-year-old. You know, yeah. that, ha- that never has gone away. It never has. I still watch Johnny Quest, and I still enjoy it as much as I ever did. Um, and I think, well, it's kind of sad if if you're doing cartoons and you don't love what you're doing.
0: Because you know, I right?
1: suggest you get into another business. Yeah, I suggest you get into another business. I don't know why people who obviously not having a good time doing cartoons uh, want to do it, because it's so much work. You know, I mean, just doing storyboards—the amount of drawings you have to do is uh, staggering. There isn't really any a harder job. I mean, there are there are hard jobs. There are many hard jobs in animation, especially being an animator. But um, storyboarding properly is an arduous task, and it takes a hell of a lot of work, a lot. Yep. And uh, and and it's physically taxing too, as you get older. But so the thing that keeps me going and keeps me enjoying this thing is that I really enjoy you know, I enjoy the same things that I enjoyed as a kid. And I still do. I haven't lost it.
0: Yep. And and I totally understand that because you know, it's that whole idea, like one of my favorite directors is um is uh, Richard Franklin. He's Aust- he's Australia he was an Australian horror director, he made movies like, Road Games, uh Patrick and he did the mm-hmm. the first sequel psycho, psycho two. And, um, mm-hmm. he was a huge Alfred Hitchcock fan. Like you mentioned, you mentioned Hitchcock earlier and he reached out to Hitchcock and he said, would you like to come speak to my film class? I even said he, there was an interview and he had said, I didn't think he was going to, I didn't think it was going to happen, but it did. And I asked him and then I worked mm-hmm. with him on one of his last films and then I directed Psycho 2. And he even said that in a way he felt that with the love and respect that he had for his work, well. that, um. He would, he should be the one to direct it. And it's, and it shows that kind of respect and joy of the work and not just yours, but the work that came before yours. And it shows in that, like, if you look at mm. any of the psycho movies or not, the other psycho sequels are not, not, not that great, but that one, I'm like, yes, no. this actually feels like it could be a real sequel to psycho too. And not just a psycho and not just a cash in.
1: Yeah. 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 <laughs> You no, know, if you don't have Anthony Perkins, well, you know it's like it's all questionable. Yep. It's like you gotta have Perkins.
0: Exactly. <laughs> so, so I, I've got I've got I've got I'm gonna have my fanboy moment, which is gonna, actually gonna be pretty consistent throughout the whole show. But um, okay. you've directed some of my favorite Batman episodes, but two in particular, they're both 2 parts. are Heart of Steel and the Demon's Quest. Um. Oh, okay. Of, Heart of Steel, let's talk about that, because I am a huge science fiction fan. I'm a huge fan of William Gibson. I love Blade Runner. I love so much just the kind of work Mm -hmm. and the idea behind AI, artificial intelligence. And this episode really tackled it to the point where you brought William Sanderson uh, from Blade Runner Mm -hmm. onto the episode. How did that episode come back? Because it was so unique uh, compared to a lot of the other episodes in Batman.
1: Well... It was actually kind of, uh, troublesome. And, uh, one of the things that I really, it went to one, one, of the animation studios that I did not think was up to it, uh, Sunrise, because they would always ship their animation off to China. And even though I think the Chinese studio Jade did their utmost, like they were really trying, but they're just, they were not really equipped to do a show like Batman, but saying that it's still, it's still, it came out okay. I think. But it was actually kind of a troublesome script. It was overlong. And uh, Bryn, I think it was written by Brin Stevens, yeah. right? And I'd worked with Brin before at Deke. She was another person I worked with at Deke. Um, she was married to Michael Reeves at the time, who was one of the story editors. And uh, I remember people saying, it's like, oh, well, Michael's just, you know, he's just using his uh, wife, his uh, ghosting this for the script for him. And I said, no. No, no, this is Bryn. She's a good writer. I worked with her on StarCom. She was the story editor on StarCom, which was um had some really good scripts. Um anyway. So the thing about Heart of Steel was it was just very long. Like what it didn't get was um I'll just give you an example of like something that I did that I storyboarded, um where the replicants? No, they're not really replicants. What would they call? <laughs> anyway, I'll call them replicants. The replicants invite him to join the club, Bruce Wayne, and he goes up in the elevator. Yeah. And then, uh, then he like gets back in the, you know, he fights his way out and gets back in the elevator, and then the elevator crashes and destroys the robots. Um, that was actually, it was like he goes upstairs, goes to this room sees them, escapes, goes outside, they have a fight, running out of the building, (laughs) and then what kills the robots is like a telephone pole gets severed by some explosion, and it falls over and manages to kill the robot, you know. And I just kind of like cut to the chase, you know, (laughs) and made it, you know. And and if people go back and watch it now, you'll kind of know what I'm talking about, but it's like, we made it batman and there's like the thing where you never see bruce wayne change into batman yeah it's just like one time it's bruce wayne and then at some point he 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 pulls the costume out and changes you know so it's like it's almost like a magic trick yeah well it's also yeah but it's it's also it's an animation shortcut but you actually use that shortcut to do something that feels cool one thing that pained me and i actually was bruce uh let me see. Yeah, Bruce didn't do any boarding on that, but the boarding when when it came to destroying the robots, every board artist like went out of his way, you know? <laughs> and and when I got back was like a the storyboard was the size of a phone book, you know. And not like your small phone book. It was it was it was huge. So I we ended up having to uh, trim a whole lot out. And the one thing that really went that I really wish I could have kept was the sequence where the replicant Batman robot shows up and fights Batman. And I thought that was like a really good capper, but there was just, there's only so much. And the story is about Barbara Gordon, you know? Yeah. So we had to stick to that. And, uh, so just Batman fighting Batman didn't seem as important when you looked at the whole picture. Cause I, and I really thought, uh, um, was Melissa Gilbert did a great job as, uh, as um, Barbara Gordon. She was fantastic. And fin- I thought she that was, was a fantastic. great introduction. Yeah. And yeah. I thought, and there's like one, it has one of the best <laughs> lines too. And I, <laughs> where, and I think that, I don't think it would, I think it was kind of an ad lib that happened at the recording, but where they're on the rooftop and she's like, and Batman's like, look, I'm going to go take care of this. You stay here. And she says, no, it's my father. And he's like, let go of my cape. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like dragging, <laughs> yanking on his cape, and it's like so. We, I think we matched the visual from the recording on that one. Yep. <laughs> Please let go of my cape. Anyway, but no, but it, it's and, and as a two-parter, I liked it a lot. Um, and I and one thing I, uh, well, I've said this before in public, but I have to apologize to Mike Hogan because he was one of my board artists, but back at Deke. He was a character designer. And when he came on board, he uh, said, uh, you know, this was pretty much his first pro um, storyboarding job. And uh, he was great from the get go. You know, there was, there was never any problem. But he said, please, Kevin, just promise me you're not going to, I'm not going to do any character designs. And I said, oh, yeah, that's okay, Mike. Don't worry. Uh, no character designs at all. Every episode, I'm using Mike Gogan <laughs> as a character designer, you know. Because Bruce, there's no way Bruce could do all the character designs. There's no way. So I would end up using people from the crew.
0: You're saying that Bruce Tim isn't just a robot who can design all the characters?
1: No. No, it's just not physically possible. And the one thing is, is like, Randa the robot, that's Mike Gogan's design. You really? know, It's just, I just, we just went like, look, it's got to be Marilyn Monroe, you know. You need Marilyn Monroe as a killer robot, and that I think that's kind of unique to that show. To uh, yeah, to us, it's like we're the first ones to do the killer robot. I think that was pre T three kind of thing.
0: And it works. It works so well because you have that like when you have that shot where you see the other part of the face torn off, and it's just like in shadow, except for the eyeball and the teeth. That's such a cool visual.
1: Yeah, well, I tried. Actually, if you look on my Facebook page, I think I actually put up uh, that storyboard pretty recently.
0: Oh, that's awesome! I need to take a look at that.
1: So you can go, yeah, you can go look at my storyboard, look at the storyboard, and then you can play the Blu-ray at the same time.
0: Yeah, my <laughs> my my girlfriend surprised me on my birthday, and um, I was like, "Oh, what's this?" And I opened it, and it's the it was the deluxe Batman animated box set remastered, and I'm. Watching on there, we had just got a new soundbar, just, just got the new TV. And I was like, oh, this will look pretty good. I'm watching on there. Oh, so this looks new. This looks like it was made, like, last week, which is Yeah, well, that's um,
1: yeah, it's something that Warner Brothers did, too, um, back in the day. Um, they had a, like, the first year, um, we were, the first season is all film. And uh, it was all edited on Moviola. Oh, wow. You know, the old-fashioned way. You know, yeah. With tape and splicing, And which actually, Teresa Gilroy, one of the editors, if you look at the mechanic, that was the single worst animation job I think I got in the whole series. And yet, it holds up simply because I was working with an editor that could piece like the smallest scenes we were sitting there going okay when you do the playback and they actually make the final film of it we're just praying that the splices didn't like fly apart because she had to some of the things she would have to take out huge chunks of crap animation and like just splice like the ends of the ends of the uh film together and uh, it, it was amazing to watch. It was just the, the, just how good those editors were on that show.
0: I've always found the episode really interesting just because um, it takes such a different approach. Um, it takes such a different approach to, from the storytelling and is one of the more character-focused episodes. And in a way, you know, John Delancey, who, of course, he worked with later, we'll definitely talk about that. And uh, Paul Williams, yeah. they just add so much to it with their performances.
1: Oh, uh, yeah. No, yeah. no, Paul Williams is awesome. He was just he was just it was and he was another you know I was a fan of the phantom of Paradise oh, and all that, that you know, yeah, and a big monkeys fan too yeah. <laughs> from back in the day, and there was a lot of paul paul Williams music on that yeah no the, the, and uh well, let me see and uh the thing about uh the editing and later on they also they went digital you know with the avid computers the first time um we did that i've ever done digital editing was on batman but the thing that warner brothers did and you see it in the blu-ray is that they would edit it on the avid so it's pretty much a digital copy that would get aired but to archive it warner brothers actually had film and they matched edited at the same time they were doing the avid edit yeah they did old school edit of the film, so they had canisters of film to archive, and that's what the Blu-ray is, and the Blu-ray has retakes in it that never got on the air. I did not even know that. Yeah, no, there are, there are like color correcting and all sorts of things happened in the film that are on the episodes, my episodes anyway that didn't make it to the air. There were actual, the final retakes are all there.
0: And, it, it, and uh, it they did it so well. They,
1: yeah. No, but that's why it's like, it's film that the um, digital copies were made from. That's why it's so rich. And yeah. Sweet. yeah, you know, it's like, it's amazing. It's like, yeah, it, no, it, the, the blu-ray, it, it has never looked better. No question. And to, and sometimes it's like, I looked at some of the episodes, like uh, the mechanic actually really make me cringe because now I can you can really see like some of the crummy cells and you know the cell dirt and stuff, you know, all the, all those imperfections are just uh
0: blown up. You've talked about limitations, some of the animation teams that you worked with, but then we have Spectrum Animation, mm-hmm. who you were who was just amazing and you were fortunate enough to direct two episodes of yeah. them on Leather Wings and POV.
1: Yeah, they they actually were um at Deke, um, starting with ki video, we, uh, were working with a Japanese studio. They were kind of like, um, TMS was the big studio in Japan, of course, at that time. And, uh, they had satellite studios that worked for them who were all really good and had that high level of animation. And one of them was Kurumi and, uh, Mr. Fukuda was someone that I knew who was like the head of Kurumi studios at that time. And Ken Duer, who actually came on Warner Brothers, he was another, he started out as a translator, um, absolutely fluent in Japanese and English, of course. And, uh, he started out as a translator and he worked his way up through production. He was hired at Warner Brothers to be a producer. Was he a producer at that time or was he hired? Well, anyhow, Ken, you know, and I already knew Fukuda-san. And, uh, so Ken, got him, and he came over, and I think Spectrum Studios was formed to do Batman because TMS originally uh, said no. They wanted to do Tiny Toons. So they were they were not interested in Batman at all. But um, once Spectrum was formed, and I guess animators that worked for Spectrum, you know, well, TMS knew what was going on, and then TMS said, okay, we're on board, <laughs> you know, once the competition showed up, they were totally on board and I think t m s really tried to outdo themselves because they were trying to outdo spectrum, just like a friendly competition yeah and you you can tell yeah, I mean spectrum did a great job I, and i think I think some of the best animation of course was from was from t m s like uh two face part one and uh, uh Feet of Clay, Part 2, that I directed. I mean, I couldn't ask for more. But the one thing that I think Spectrum got, and if you look at shows like On Leather Wings and POV, uh, those two especially, you really see that they were going for that Fleischer Superman look. They were really going for it, you know. They had that that, uh, 1940-ish or, you know, that nineteen thirties animation, nineteen forties animation kind of look that generally is not in Japanese animation at all. But they re- there was just a look that they 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 achieved that I think uh was really unique to those episodes. Um TMS never quite did that. TMS did TMS, you know, all the other studios they do they, they do a great job. But um it's it kind of looks like they did it, you know what I mean? Yeah. If that makes any sense. Sun Min was also there, who I worked with later on. Sun Min, you mentioned uh, Demon's Quest. And it was uh, Sun Min animation through Don Yang that did that episode. And then Sun Min was also, through Don Yang, and was also the studio that did Mask the Phantasm. And then I used them later on. Well, then they they also were the animation studio for uh, Gen 13 and for the Pearl Jam video, do the evolution.
0: That's really cool. Um, there was a particular sequence I wanted to mention on um, on Leather Wings before you move into Master the Phantasm, and that was the the transformation with the Man Bat, where you see him where you see him walking <laughs> bet- with behind the um, behind the cylinders in the lab, and the way that he distorts yeah. and grows with each one, and it's so fluid. Like mm-hmm. the transformations and everything, the the fight are amazing, but that sequence has always drawn me, like that whole transformation sequence. So beautifully done. I, well, I wanted to ask about. It.
1: <laughs> well, I read the script and I went, "Oh, it's got a werewolf transformation in it." I'm storyboarding this one myself. It's like, get out of my way! <laughs> I really wanted to do that one really bad. Um, so I storyboarded all that 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 third act, um, the fight between Man Bat and Batman. Yeah. Um, right up through the uh, the whole Zeppelin thing. That one was, uh, well, and another thing that I did, too, because we had trouble, again, like I said earlier, we had trouble finding people who could draw action-adventure. So me, Brad Rader, Dan Reba, um, God, who else was there? We all ended up doing the layouts ourselves, which is how you get that kind of control. So I actually drew that. (laughs) Oh, you, know, wow. <laughs> you it was it's almost animated you know it's like the, way, the the amount of effort we were able to put into the layouts at that time especially on that first episode so yeah it's like if if you drew your sequence you got to do the layouts on it and uh and, and we just threw out a we just you know Bruce was well Bruce was quite right that when the first batch of layouts came back we had a whole layouts you know crew there and it was just kind of a little too goofy looking, you know. Yeah. It was hard. They they were having a hard time getting uh, Bruce's proportions and stuff. So me, uh, Dan, and uh, Kurt Gata, we ended up redrawing a lot of the layouts ourselves. And that one in particular, like, a, you know, every from pose to pose, it was like we were doing the layouts. So we had, you know, that's how we had to control. And of course, Spectrum did a great job on the animation.
0: It's so clean, and like the use of color, especially like you said on the Blu-ray uh, with the remaster, like that—it's just really eye-catching. I've always loved that sequence, and the fact that it was in no, the first no, episode that's... of the show, yeah, it's like, it's like here we're going to show you exactly yeah. what we're doing right <laughs> here, and it's this. Yeah. Yeah. No,
1: I mean, I was like, I was kind of shocked. I I was kind of shocked that, like, when I read the script myself, I said, really? All right, you know? Yep. And then the thing about it being Man-Bat is that uh, Batman, we really had him cut loose on Man-Bat because he's a big monster. And when Broadcast Standards said, you know, about punches to the head and all this stuff, he says, no, but it's a big monster guy. (laughs) He's like, oh, okay, monsters are all right. Monsters and robots you can beat up on.
0: And it's so, It is kind of sad. Yeah. It's kind of bittersweet because then you have the. Re- you realize this is a human the entire time, and because some studio, some actually yeah. couple, some studio heads aren't the sharpest. So you can be like, oh, it's a monster. See this picture where it's a monster. And they're like, oh, okay, it's a monster. And then you're just you like, know, Batman's a good
1: guy. He's he's just trying to apprehend him, and he does. You know. Yeah. Has to smash his head into a wall, but it still it worked. Okay. Concussions yeah, didn't solve do any all hard. crime
0: problems. He's just, he's just
1: there at the end, you know, it's like he's kind of an unconscious guy. Yep. but he's human again. Sure. Anyway. <laughs> oh, so, and, and you were talking about you were talking about Demon's Quest. Yes. And the thing about Demon's Quest was, um, ever since I was a kid, I read the comic book, uh, the demons. You know, the, well, it wasn't called the Demon's Quest, but it was the Rachel Ghoul. Um, series that was in Batman, written, you know, the Denny O'Neill, um,
0: Neil Adams, yeah,
1: Neil Adams, so good, and that, like, I was just jazzed, you know. And it's like and the fact that, like, you know, that Batman's—I mean, it, it, they rewrite so many things and they make things up. And yes, there's attraction between him and Selena Kyle and all this stuff, but the one love of Batman's life is talia you know yeah and you know that that's that it's just so cool and it's like that whole thing where it's like instead of being just in gotham city which is cool this is the one where he's a globe trotting guy you know it's like it it takes it takes it all across the world in this one uh, this one giant adventure which is actually just a test to see if he's good enough to be talia's husband (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I just, yeah. when I read that when I was a kid, um, I just, I just, the whole image of Batman stripped to the waist in the desert, having a saber duel with Rachel Ghoul. It's just comic. Um, all of that just hit me. It just hit me. And I just wanted to, from when I was 13, I wanted to do that as a cartoon. And I didn't know how to do a cartoon. I had no ideas about cartoons. I had no, I, I mean, I was just like a stupid fanboy in connecticut at the time what do i know and there it is it's like and once i started the series i just i just told bruce from the beginning and eric and alan burnett when he showed up i said just when a racial ghoul shows up i get to do him. and on top of that alan burnett got denny o'neill to write the script yep on his adaptation of his thing
0: and then in terms of in terms of casting with david warner you could not have done better with Rosalind and Helen Slater as Talia? No.
1: No, and he wasn't even our pick.
0: he was, I mean, was your
1: original you, pick? Well, um, Andrea, you know, every time every time some new character would show up, Andrea would always go and talk to the directors and producers. Okay, who do you see? You know, if you were going to cast this actor, who 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 would you see? You know? And of course, most of the time it's just Andrea saying, "Hey, you know, try this." You know, she she would just like find the actors that were perfect for it. But in this case, she was asking, you know, because this was a new new character. And I I said, "Well, you know, if Richard Burton was alive, we'd get Richard Burton." You know, it's got to be it's got to be some classy British actor. You know, it's got to be a classy British actor. And we're going like, "God, who who'd you get?" You know, and it's like we had, you know, and it's like, "Oh, Patrick Stewart would be awesome." And Patrick Stewart was doing TV commercials at the time or uh, radio commercials. Um, great voice. And we say, well, get Patrick Stewart. Oh, Lord. And then I was listening to these books on tape, uh, the Colin McCullough, um, First Man in Rome series and Michael York was doing a bunch of those and he's great because he's, he's, he's a perfect Caesar. But he's also, he would play the female roles, too. And, you know, when you're doing a book on tape, you're doing all these different characters. And he was awesome. And I thought, Michael York. And she said, you know what? Michael York's in town. I can get him. So she got Michael York. But then she calls up and she says, how about this? David Warner. And I'm like, oh, my God. (laughs) David Warner, that's even better. What do we say? What are you gonna? What are you gonna? What are you gonna tell Michael York? He says, oh no, don't worry. You got Count Vertigo. He can be Count Vertigo in the same episode. So that was the 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 uh, first time that Racial Gould shows up is in the episode where we introduce Talia, and Off Balance is the name of it, and where they have Count Vertigo and Talia, and then Racial Gould. And then the next Demon's Quest, it's like David Warner is on board completely as Rachel Gould, and uh, oh, it, just that voice and that performance brings so much to it. And he was really into the character too. He, he's really into it. He's he 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 was well. It's, uh, I'm so, I'm just sorry that so many people didn't get to see the actors performing their characters <laughs> because it's like seeing David Warner. Yeah, he's sitting there just and he, but just seeing him perform the character was great. And uh, well, it's the same thing. It's like, yeah, you know, I'm sorry that everyone hasn't seen Mark Hamill perform the Joker because that is one hell of a performance, man. <laughs> he, he I remember becomes,
0: he becomes the guy. I remember hmm? it wasn't from um, Batman. It was an interview actually from Spider Man when he was um, the Hobgoblin, and oh. there was a one of the director. They had an interview with one of the directors and he said yeah, you're sitting there watching this man and just watching the veins pop out of his neck and you're like is he just going to start turning orange like the hobgoblin yeah. is that going yeah. to happen
1: yeah no he's the mark is great He's like but again mark is another comic book uh he's another he's a fanboy you know so i think when he got luke skywalker he was just living the dream you know it, and uh, yeah, and the, he uh, loved – i
0: remember the comic yeah. con yeah. pictures
1: no and he in um, it's like him with the uh, Arlene. Oh my God, him and him and Harley <laughs> with Arlene Sorkin. Watching those two interact, you know, on stage was just oh, you couldn't ask for more. It was just wonderful, magic and then, actually. of course,
0: I mean, I mean, you did two of the key episodes. You did Harley Quinnade and uh, Harley's Holiday. Oh right? yeah,
1: I love those. Yep. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I um, Harley Quinnade. I really, uh, well, I literally yanked that script out of Dan Reba's hand. They're going to give it to Dan. And I heard them talking about it. And I, said, and I walked in because the script originally had the Joker in a helicopter. And I went, no, if it's the Joker, he dresses up like the Red Baron and it's a biplane. <laughs> it's a it's a Martin bomber. And I, uh, and uh, that I heard them talking about it. And it's like Paul actually came in and uh, was pitching the idea to me in my office, which he'd do uh, from time to time because, you know, we're we're pals. And Paul would come in and say, you know what? I think, you know, Harley's in jail, and the Joker gets this A-bomb, so Batman has to spring her from jail and save the Joker. Yeah, he's going to drop the A-bomb with a Martin bomber. (laughs) Things like that. (laughs) And after that, you know, a couple of weeks later, they're talking i hear them talking in the room next to me which is bruce's office next to my office and i could hear them talking about this script and then i heard dan talking and i go oh no you don't and i got up and i go sorry dan but i'm getting the joker script this time and i never had gotten to do harley yet either so i really really wanted to do it and uh yeah <laughs> it's like and that 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 was really a blast to draw and um i love harley she's my favorite character
0: the thing I appreciate about both your Harley episodes is um, we do get a lot, we do get into the character a lot, like with because of you and Deanie. Yeah. and um, she's not the side, really like yeah she's not it's the some of the episodes where she's not just put into her sidekick role, and yeah. it works so yeah well.
1: well I think that was a decision that Paul was making, and it's starting with with um, the previous episodes when when Harley shows up. She is the sidekick. And I remember Paul actually came into my office once way before Harley existed. And he said, he said, you know what, Kevin, remember the 60s Batman? You know, the Cesar Romero, he always had a mall. There was always a girl in the gang. I think, I think the Joker needs a girl. (laughs) It's like, yeah, a hench girl. It's like, yeah, great. Awesome. You know, and then of course, I don't get the script. (laughs) <laughs> but 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 i think that in this one where uh, harley does come into her own and uh i think that uh paul and arlene and bruce well maybe it was bruce and paul i'm not sure what the combination was but it's certainly paul but he really saw the potential like how good arlene was and that she could hold a whole episode herself you know as the villain villain so to speak but uh yeah and it's like well she's well it's like what i love about it is like she's heroic and yet she's sneaky at the same time and she's kind of (laughs) dumb off and on you know (laughs) it's like it's just it's just well it's like arlene after harlequinade and i think yeah no it was from the time we did harlequinade and then uh we did Harley's holiday. So there was quite a bit of time in between those two episodes when in production. And the next time I was going to do Harley's holiday before the recording even started, Arlene comes over to me and goes, guess what? And I'm like, what? I said, I was the guest speaker for the girl Scouts of America. And I'm like, what? <laughs> They're like, Yeah. They called me up, you know, because they, they wanted, you know, Harley to uh, give a speech to the girls as a positive role model. <laughs> and she went, Do you guys watch the show? <laughs> it's, it's like, don't be like Harley. <laughs> but I really wish I could have seen that Girl Scout speech that she gave. That would have been awesome.
0: Anyhow. And it, it is funny because, like, in a way, when you look at. At harley, at harley quinn now and what the characters become especially one of the better written ones um we're just not going to talk about the suicide squad movie but um like you look, talk, look uh, at like no um, i i mean
1: like i actually what with... people are surprised when i say that like the harley quinn show the comedy that's on now uh was it uh, the one produced by jennifer coyle i, yeah. I
0: like it <laughs> it's like i think it's funny. it's fantastic I, yeah, it's like it's I don't funny. know why anyone would be surprised by that.
1: Well, because the animation, you know, and the style and stuff is kind of, you know, it, it ain't Batman the animated series. But what yeah. I enjoy about it is like that first episode. It's a direct sequel. I mean, the style is different. It's done more slapstick crazy. Um, yeah, it's more broad, but it's a direct. It's a very how would I say it? It's like it's almost like if Mel Brooks was writing a cartoon sequel to Batman: The Animated Series. You know, it has Pretty all the like, elements.
0: If they gave Mel Brooks a blood right. gun. <laughs> yeah.
1: No. So anyway, it's like no, but I mean, I think that you see, I'm I'm not that much of a snob that I think everything's crap that uh, doesn't, <laughs> you know, doesn't fit into my what what I want necessarily. But that one is that is a really good show. I believe. Yeah.
0: Anyway. So we, we've got to talk about Mask of the Phantasm because there was really mm. nothing like this before in terms of like, especially in terms of Western, like mainstream Western animation. And I feel in a way, even though I love the movie, reading about it and reading about the fact that they basically just rushed on you guys. were like, yeah, it's going to be in theaters now. Yeah. It's like, okay, so if you're going to put it in theaters, maybe you should advertise it. But with that, let's hear a little bit about Mask of well, the Phantasm.
1: Mask of the Phantasm was kind of done in between seasons. Um, in between yeah. the pickup of season one and, um, was it season? Well, actually it was like season two and season three. I think that one was cause we did like two seasons and then the third season, which is still Batman, the animated series, but it became the adventures of Batman and Robin, but it's the same show. So in between those two, um, they were pretty much saying, you know, we're going to do a direct to video movie. You know, and uh, all of the writers got together and Alan Burnett was actually the, the driving force for that story, basically doing our version of Batman Year One, which I thought yeah. was great. You know, I, I think that was great. There were, there, were, there were other stories bandied about, but that was the one that was settled on. And uh, so my one complaint about it is all of these flashbacks, you know, but. It's still it's still good and i thought that was a better or th- that's perhaps the best origin for the joker i've ever seen like you know he's basically a hitman yeah. you know so it's like being the murderous thug that he is after going really nuts well he was already predisposed to be a murderer anyway you know so that was i thought really good but that they um basically said well it was put on the same schedule, like it's, uh, say it's a 80-minute movie, 70-minute movie. Um, they just basically scheduled it like it was part of the uh, series. So you have four weeks for a storyboard. So it's like four weeks with like a five weeks to polish it, and uh, that's kind of how it was done. But they put all of the crews on the one movie, and they broke it up sequence by sequence. And I got to do the Joker sequences.
0: Uh, The the Joker sequences were so good. Was it the World of the Future? That and uh, the Joker and the
1: flashbacks and all the stuff. If you see the Joker, and Mike Gogan knocked it out of the park with the uh, where the councilman (laughs) is, you know, has been had the Joker gas, you know, and where the Joker shows up with the boater hat on, you know, the big hat, and uh, says. Oh, what a photo op. The, the counselor and his <laughs> wacky pal, you know, and Andrea Beaumont calls on the phone, all, all that stuff. If you see the Joker, I was the director on that. But on that one, I can't really even take true. credit as a director because Mike Gogan and I talked about the hospital sequence, but that's Mike Gogan storyboarding, you know, excellent, excellent job. Totally. And, and uh, Hart Bachner, who, I'm kind of surprised at how good he was at, like, just that smarmy guy, you know. But the stuff, the voice acting where he's laughing and, you know, and they're trying to keep him calm. And then he's like, okay, okay, I'm calm, I'm calm. And then Batman just shows up in the window and it's like, oh, no. <laughs> and he just can't hang on to it. It was, it was such a great performance.
0: I just remember him as like the 80s scumbag in Die Hard. So for me, yeah. like the idea of him being that way, it's like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Because for me, my mind ties him into Die Hard, where he's like, like cocaine nose job, uh, super 80s yeah. business man. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. but
1: he's not doing that guy. He's doing some someone who's even slicker. Yeah, but anyway, he he was so good. He was, He was so good at that role. I mean I, I don't know. And uh, again, Andre Romano casting. Stacy Keach. Great, great great voice. Stacy
0: Keach was fantastic. Like, you yeah. don't even hear his voice in the phantasm no, at all.
1: Not Fine. really. And it, yeah. but he was he, and he is I mean, it is him doing the voice of uh, the phantasm itself, even though that's actually Dana Delaney, but it's it that is, you know, Stacy Keach. Really nice, creepy yeah. voice.
0: I was gonna say I feel like at 27 years we shouldn't have we don't have to warn people about spoilers. It's like if you haven't watched it by uh, this point it's kind of your fault. Well,
1: uh, you're not giving anything away. <laughs> you know there's gonna be a phantasm. He shows up in the first sequence. <sighs>
0: yep. And it's is funny because you mentioned Batman Year One, but in a way the phantasm is a far more for me it's like a far more improved version of the Reaper from Batman yes. Year Two. And happening th- no, like, Year 2 uh, is a mess of the story. Yeah, I'm
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. I it's like I really liked um I actually think that uh Batman Year One is uh for my money. I think it's even better than Return of the Dark Knight as far as Frank Miller um goes. Because you know that that story I thought as a retelling, as a reinvention. Of Batman and Commissioner Gordon and all the main characters, even that Selina Kyle, I thought he I thought he was firing in all pistons there. That was really good. That was really good writing. And having said that, I really think that Alan Burnett's version of who Bruce Wayne is and what he becomes is actually even more logical and actually better than that. You know, so Mask of the Phantasm is, is Batman year one building the backstory and why you see and there, there's this one thing that I, um, I have problems with all of the movies and the takes that um, the characters have for them. Like, I think that, you know, Michael Keaton's a great actor, right? I didn't really, I just look at that guy that's in the Tim Burton Batman. And I'm like, why would he be Batman? Why would this rich guy be Batman? I don't know. There's nothing there that makes him that way. Whereas, um, oh, and by the way, Michael Keaton, just to see the thing that I think was a really big misstep was I think Michael Keaton would have been a great Joker. But if you saw like yeah. him as the vulture, you know, in the, the Spider-Man he's movie.
0: terrifying in yeah, that movie. He's
1: great. He's fantastic. Yeah. It's like it's such a good casting. But as Batman, I just never bought him as Batman. But he yeah Weirdly enough t-
0: he became for me I was going to say he became closer to Batman as he got older.
1: Yeah. Cuz like you hear yeah.
0: him in that in there. I'm so happy that he's going to be in the Flash movie cuz it's like yes the older Keaton is a better yeah. Batman.
1: No, no, yeah, yeah as as he got older. It's like yeah, he well it's also like many some not all actors but he he actually became a better actor as he got older and more serious. Yeah. Yeah, but no, To go back, um. So, yeah, it's like Batman Year One. I think that guy, that backstory, that young man that's training and learning, and you see him in the movie. You see him training, you know. So it's like put put, and we and we would throw that into the series too. He is always learning how to do this, how to be like this perfect Avenger. Um, you see in Mask of the Phantasm that this guy, um, this noble guy from when he's a young man is like that. I believe that that Bruce Wayne will be Batman. Absolutely. You know, I, the Batman that's in Batman, uh, in Batman the animated series, you don't have any trouble wondering what, why is this guy doing this? You know, it's not, he's not doing it for kicks he doesn't it's not for kicks it's for the he feels it's he's got to do this and he's just such a noble guy and the batman's in the movies i just don't know why like why why is christian bale doing this i just don't buy it you know i mean he, he obviously doesn't have a, a much respect for human life cuz he's just plowing through cars with that <laughs> That big rolling tank of his, he's just blowing cars up left and right. I don't know who's in those cars. Do you? Like,
0: ramming through buildings. He doesn't care. He's just, I'm going to get her to the hospital. Admittedly, he killed less people than Affleck did. Oh, yeah. Like, you're just, that's like, another it's thing. like, Affleck, why are you shooting people?
1: Yeah, I, I don't even. I see that's another thing, too, is like shooting. Batman doesn't shoot. He he never will stoop to using a gun. Guns get used against him, but it's like, no, Batman doesn't use a weapon. You know.
0: Although I did appreciate the tribute to Dark Knight Returns I did with the hostage sequence. That was the one that, that moment yeah. for me was one of those like I'm so happy to see this just come right off yeah. the page.
1: Yeah. yeah. there are there are there's good moments in all of them and it's like, you know, you can make you you can have your criticisms and stuff, but you know, Affleck's a good actor. It's not that yeah. you know it's like that it, he's a good actor. It's just I just don't know what this guy why would this guy be Batman? Or why would that guy be Superman? Christopher Reeve, you never doubted is he's being Superman, you know. It's just the moment the original Superman movie well not the original Superman movie, but you know the Christopher Reeve Superman. The moment that yeah. movie starts You never, ever question why this guy is just such a good guy. How could you, you know, it's like because he was raised by, uh, you know, Pa Kent, who it's just said in one simple thing. It's like he just he has one line that he says, well, son, showing off again, huh? Oh, dad, you know how it is. Well, you know, I don't know why you were put here, but it wasn't for making touchdowns. And that sticks with the kid. You know, just that one simple thing and you never question who he is. Now the other suit the Supermans that they have now, it's like, well, he has no problem just laying waste <laughs> to the whole city. You know? It's like he doesn't have he doesn't care. You know, there's like there's all this peripheral damage done and it's like how many thousands of people are dying just because you're having a fight.
0: <laughs> That's why like I think Brandon Roth, Brandon Roth never got a fair shake until recently with Crisis of Infinite Earths on the CW, because he really, in many ways, he was that he is that modern incarnation of Reeve, and Superman Returns did him no no favors. And then I met him recently, and you just talk to the man, and it's like, holy crap, you kind of are Superman Clark Kent in real life. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, and it's kind of sad that a lot of people overlooked him until recently. Which I was yeah. really happy to see him be so. Well, it's again. also,
1: it's the material that you get that um, enables you to do it, you know? It's like, I, I mean, I'm yeah. sure that, like, the... Well, he wasn't asked to do that character <laughs> until recently, you know what I mean? <laughs> yep.
0: Yeah. So, I've got to ask you about Pearl Jam Do The Evolution, because I only saw this video maybe less than 10 years ago, because I just... Didn't know of it. I don't know how I didn't know of it because it's right up my alley. You and Tom McFarland just coming together on this video, and it's it's still such a unique, cool yeah, video. Well,
1: um, that like I knew Joe, and I actually got a phone call. I'm trying to remember what was I doing. I was um, this was after I did Gen Thirteen, mm-hmm. and I I may have been doing comics at the time. I don't know. I don't I don't think I was. You know, I, I was busy with something, but. Anyway, I got up, Joe had this small studio, Epoch, over in Santa Monica, you know, and working in Santa Monica is great, you know, because I live over on the west side, and uh, Joe calls me up and says, you know, it's like, I have got we, I think I can get this job, you know, Todd McFarlane has this job, and uh, they're looking for a studio to do it, and, uh, they've had it for a while and I'm like, what is it? And it's like, well, it's a rock video for Pearl jam. And I'm like, well, you know, I knew Pearl jam obviously, but I didn't know do the evolution. And he says, yeah, it's for the new album yield and it's, you know, do the evolution. And I'm like, well, yeah, we could, yeah, we could do that. You know, you know, and I'm starting to run it over in my head. How long, how much work it'll take, you know, it's like roughly four minutes of animation and blah. blah. And then Joe says, yeah. And we have 12 weeks. I'm like, what? <laughs> twelve weeks? Are you insane? <laughs> it's like twelve weeks to do the animation. No, that's the air date. MTV needs it on the air, and I'm like going, what? Is, what the? What the hell, man? You know, and I'm thinking, ah, oh, geez, I don't know, Joe. I don't know if we can do it. I mean, Jesus Christ, you may go bankrupt trying to make. It. He says, no. Well, it's like he just said, you know, talk to Todd, see what you know, talk to him about it, and so. Um, Todd McFarlane gives me a call and we're talking about how to do it. And I'm like, oh, geez, I don't know if we can do this. It's like, it's just not enough time, man. And I mean, I mean, you know, I didn't say it to him at the time, but I'm like, what the hell were you doing? You had this thing for a year. (laughs) It's like, why? It's like, I, I mean, do you have anything? They didn't have a script, they didn't have anything. So I go out and I buy the CD and I'm like, I don't know if I want to do this job. Jeez, it's like 12 weeks. God, how can you do it? It's just so much work. <laughs> and I go and I put on the the video. I turn on the, I mean, I put on the CD, right? And I go to the, uh, do the evolution. And I hear da, 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 da. So it's got like a nice rotating rhythm. And I'm listening to the lyrics and I'm like, oh. It literally is about history. It's about the history of the world. And then as I'm listening to it, all of a sudden, they hit that hallelujah chorus in the middle of it. And as soon as they hit that, I go like, boom. If you were a 12-year-old girl in France in 1913, it'd be paradise. The very next year, it's the worst hell on earth that mankind has ever created. And I'm like, oh, and it just like suddenly and from the beginning and I'm going like, yes. And you go from the uh, the amoeba to the fish to the dinosaur and each is they're feeding on each other. And it's just like dog eat dog. And it's like and then mankind is following the same, you know, and just the images started flying. And I was from that moment on, I was kind of sunk because it's like, well, we're just going to have hit the ground running, and we're going to eliminate the layout process, which will save us a couple of weeks. And the thing is, we have to do the storyboards really tight and use the storyboards as layouts. And uh, Joe got Sun Min Animation, which both of us have worked with before. Um, and they, you know, and they, they could do action-adventure. And another studio, Iray, which um, I don't know what the connection was between them and Sun Min but they were another very capable studio in Korea. And uh, let me see, Sunmin Min did, uh, I think, the first half, and Irei, I think, did the second half. And then it was animated from the storyboards in chronological order of the history of the world in four minutes. Um, and we pitched it to um, Eddie Vedder and to Todd, um, doing it like a story pitch. Uh, style because at Joe's office he had a conference room where you know you, we could just we did the storyboards really big we did it like how I learned to do it at Disney which is story sketch style where you go from image, yeah. to, image to image and you pin them it's not storyboard panels we're doing like the images and pinning them up on the wall so you know drawings that I did and I would rough out stuff and uh we had Brad Coombs as character designer and Had him doing some storyboards, too. He'd just rough stuff out, and then he would do it. And then you have the dinosaur. You found a who could do dinosaurs. It's like Jim Mitchell could draw dinosaurs good, so we used him. And we're putting all these up on the wall until finally it tells, like, this one chronological story, the history of mankind. And uh, Eddie Vedder really liked it, and I said, yes, the history of mankind. And he goes, for stoners. Yes, that's even better. The history of mankind in four minutes for stoners. And, yeah, pretty uh, much. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and from there it's like, and then you know, and then we pitched that to Todd and uh, and to uh, Eddie Vetter, and uh, they just said, okay, go pick the images, did some editing, took stuff out, created new stuff, put it in, <laughs> and then Joe and I went to Korea, and uh, I took uh, like a lot of video reference for like explosions and things f- that from uh what did I from uh, all quiet on the western front filmed by louis millstone i don't know if you've ever seen it
0: i'm actually very happy to hear that you referenced it that you that you uh, took from that like reference from that for the video cuz that movie is oh, amazing
1: yeah no it's like it's like it's 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 the explosions and stuff there are very true to world war 1 you know usually when you see films about world war one, there's like these boiling fireballs and stuff. And it's like, that ain't world war one world war one is explosions mean tons of mud that will bury you alive. (laughs) You know? And, uh, and we showed that and we showed that to the animators, um, and just had like these very intense, very quick conferences with them. And, uh, it went right from the storyboards straight to animation. And, uh, they did it on time and it made it to the air and uh mtv pretty much objected to almost every single scene (laughs) almost everyone (laughs) they had something that they didn't want to put it on the air but but you know sony and uh pearl jam basically pearl jam i would say more than anyone else now they said nope we want to scare the shit out of people and uh you can put it on the air if you want, and we don't really care if you don't. <laughs> so they got what they got.
0: And the crazy thing is, like, if you think about like MTV during the Liquid Television era when we were getting stuff like, yeah, Flux and of the head, they would have put that up in a second, you know, just like a couple yeah. years before. That's the yeah. crazy part. Well, no,
1: it's uh, it's whatever you you. It's probably different executives, and it's for a different thing. Yeah. They were probably seeing putting a Pearl Jam video on in the two in the afternoon, you know, for a younger audience or something because it's animated. They weren't thinking adults sure. kind of thoughts, you know, they they were there. It was a different group of people, I'm sure. So they were. <laughs> well, and for me, that's like for me, that's like the Pearl Jam video is Well, it's, it's probably the truest expression of me, you know that you'll see in animation. It's very pure, mainly because it was done so fast and, you know, and it's, and it was, it was just like a train of thought writing, you know, as it just went, uh, it was just like pure story sketch to straight to animation, you know, and that, that rarely happens. So it it actually, it, it, and I was like shocked that it got like a Grammy nomination for best video. (laughs) I was like, really? I thought you guys were going to so try, cool, and though, run, it? Yeah, you're going to try and run <laughs> I mean, me out of town on a rail or something for this one, but no. And and I'm not actually I'm not that much of a pessimist. If you look at the Pearl Jam video, it is a very pessimistic look. I look on life um, at the evils of man, but all you got to do is look at the present politics. You know.
0: Yep. I got. Into,
1: yeah, it's like Joe and everyone I remember because I did that one with the politician. I'm a thief. I'm a liar, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and then you show the politician with the death playing with the dude using him as a puppet. Um, well, look yep. at politics, man. Look at it now. You know, I, I think know. I, I think and, I nailed it. I have the and dictator. when you think
0: about it, it's really. Yeah, I was going to say it's not a better time for the um for the art for the Pearl Jam Art of Do the Evolution book to come out because I know it's coming out Is next it? month. Yeah, uh, I, October thirteenth. Mean,
1: they interviewed me like about oh geez years ago. I was working on Stretch Armstrong, so yeah, no one tells me anything.
0: But you, well, I now probably I feel sad for Kevin.
1: <laughs> I, I
0: pro, I'm probably not
1: even mentioned in the book.
0: Well, they, actually, the the funny thing is, they actually directly um, like for like because I know it had popped up on Amazon for pre-order, and mm-hmm. they they show the credits on there, and they directly show you as one of the contributors on there, right at oh, the main okay. page.
1: Well, that's good yep. though.
0: But um. Now you mentioned that you had been working in comic books for a little bit at the time, and I've got to talk about uh, the Batman Adventures Holiday Special because it's such a unique thing. Because you've got a mm-hmm. lot of it's basically all done by you guys. It's all done by the animation yeah, crew. it is. And it's such a and I have to talk. I had to ask about that because that had to be interesting, kind of transitioning from working in the animation. I know we had the Batman Adventures comics at the time, but this bringing the anim bringing the animation crew to comics. What was that experience like? What was that, that kind of collaborative effort well, in, in a different media? we all had the day
1: job. <laughs> we were still doing the cartoon. Um, but, yeah, it's, uh, they, I mean, it was pretty awesome. Uh, me, uh, Ronnie Del Carmen. Um, I think I did, I did the longest story in there. Yeah, and Glenn, too. Glenn Murakami. Um, it wasn't, uh, for all of everything, Butch, Who inked Me?, it wasn't really yeah. any kind of a different step to do comics. I think we all did them. Uh, Bruce, I don't know how many, if Bruce actually, Bruce did like a He-Man car, comic books and stuff. I, I don't, I, he really didn't do comics much professionally. I mean, I did comics for TSR, the Buck Rogers series, Black Barney. Um, yeah. But it was like, it was something we did on top of the job. And it was just kind of fun to do, you know, it wasn't fun to like not go to sleep at night because, you know, you have, you're doing your day job and then you do the comic too. But, and I, and I think I had the longest one, the the holiday, the uh, new year's Eve one, I think was the longest story, but I had an anchor. I had Butch and Butch was like, you know, I didn't have to worry about him. He's, he's, he's just a great artist, you know? And uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, it was just, it was just fun it was just fun and it's like for everyone there doing a switch to comics was nothing you know and and there there was like a no misunderstanding between any of us of the difference between comics and animation we knew it um and and of course Bruce and Paul picked the crew picked the people who could do it so it's not like they picked anyone that they thought would have a hard time doing a comic book you know yeah. you know it's like oh yes let me see. Can Ronnie Del Carmen draw really pretty girls going running around in a yes. department store? <laughs> yes, I think he can. <laughs> it's, like, yep, that's a, it's good casting. It's good casting all around. And I really love I, I really think anyone who it. read
0: Alien Mondo Heat. Hmm? Sorry. I was going to say, I think anyone who read Aliens Mondo Heat by, um, by, Ron, by uh, Ronnie knows, what, knows that he knows what he's doing in regards yeah. to that.
1: No, he showed up. Yeah. Um, he was a comic book artist that showed up on the crew. Uh, like you know, was, we're in the second season, I think. Yeah, and Ronnie was his. His samples. There was no animation samples. He was just all comics. I mean, it was just great. The guy was like, you know, brilliant, brilliant draftsman. Anyway. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the so we, we got we got to do it, man. We've talked about comics. We got talked about animation. Let's talk about Gen thirteen because, my God, this is I. I I I saw it. I had known of it. I'd seen clips of it. Paramount it it had a
1: pretty wide international release distribution. Just the domestic distribution was uh, Disney, and they didn't want to distribute it. <laughs> you know, they they wanted to they they wanted to own the property, but they didn't want to. Um, they didn't want to do well. Like I said earlier on, I think Disney does that. You know, they they'll. Purchase things and then they'll just like not want to release it for whatever reason internally. Um, they, I think, they were planning on doing Hero High even at that time and they wanted to mine that for that material. You know, they want to do their thing, they don't want to do someone else's. And then, of course, Jim, Jim Lee sold Wildstorm to DC. So when he sold Wildstorm, DC, Warner Communications, owns Gen 13, the comic, the printing rights. And Disney, Buena Vista, has the animation rights and live action rights for Gen 13. And back then, there's no way there's going to be like any cooperation between those two studios. They're rivals. Yes. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're not going to cooperate with each other. And somehow Paramount got the distribution rights for the world. And it's been, it's all over the place. Like, I, I got, like, small royalty checks at one time from, like, a, I think the Netherlands for television broadcasts. Like, it was, a, like, a yearly thing in the Netherlands for a while, I think. It was the Netherlands and Germany. Um, and they England. think
0: there was, like, an Australian DVD oh, yeah. release.
1: No, no, the, the United Kingdom had a, a release. So it wasn't just uh, Australia. It's Australia, England, um, Scotland, Ireland, you know. I, th- I think it's been translated into a few languages too. I'm not sure, but it's had, you know, it's it's like because it was play, played in France and Italy, um. So, anyway, where's my
0: money now? I know you, <laughs> right? Good get, get this man his paycheck. <laughs> now I know you had. I know you had um, also worked on the Gender Teen Gwen Saves a World" comic with um mm-hmm. with um with Mark Farmer, but um going mm-hmm. into this going into the movie. What was that? What was that like? Because the one thing that I noticed as a fan, because I've read every every issue of Gen Thirteen, like it's it was like my mild obsession through like high school and early college, and um, the one thing I noticed was the fact that uh, Rainmaker and uh, Sarah Rainmaker and Bobby Burnout yeah. are kind of not in they the are like they're in the background. They're, they're yes, yeah. but it's just
1: cases. it's just um well the thing about Gen Thirteen, well it's like because. I was pretty happy at Warner Brothers, um, but then in between Batman and I worked in development on Superman a little bit, um, but that was you no—it's know, like it just wasn't coming; it wasn't happening very quickly. And I've always wanted to do superhero, you know, hardcore superhero direct video stuff, and I just had the concept that yeah. you just sell it through comic shops. Like the image model, you know, where basically you sell it through the comic shops and use Diamond Distributors or whoever your distributor was and just sell it there and stay away from all the other Hollywood uh, distribution problems. And Jim Lee was the first guy that was really on board to do that. He thought it was a good idea. Um, so that was the original plan. And the thing was, it was financed strictly by Wildstorm. And it's a small budget. And one of the yeah. big problems <laughs> that if you ever see a cartoon and you see it starting to fall apart, it's like um, not to pick on anyone. But the thing about and I've worked on them before, the team shows. But, oh, my God, if you're doing Justice League, number one, you got Superman there. OK, problems are all solved. So you spend an episode trying to get rid of Superman so that the other guys can do something, you know, he's faster than the Flash. Yeah. You know, he's just as strong as Martian Manhunter. Well, he may not be a shapeshifter, but well, you know, so what? (laughs) It's like, you know, oh, he's invulnerable. You know, you can you can hit him with an atom bomb and it's not going to hurt him too much. It's like you have to get rid of that guy. And it's like everyone's in the room together all the time. And the one thing about and Gen thirteen was the new comic at the time. It was a very new comic. I think I only read. Yeah. They gave me that first issue, and I met Jeff Scott Campbell, great guy, you know, and Brandon and uh, Jim. And uh, I just looked at all their their uh, properties, and I just went, well, this one's a winner, isn't it? You know, this. And he says, yeah. Well, we're getting like a lot of good uh, reviews on the first issue. And it's like, yeah, I think this one's got legs you know Gen 13 you know just these characters and i especially loved Fairchild as a main character um just yeah. just the mousy girl that turns into Raquel Welch that can crush a tank is just a that's a great character <laughs> and and she's just really young and virginal virginal and you know and and has to is just thrust into this and she's pretty much as strong as the Hulk it's a great character and she never loses being Fairchild Fairchild's always Fairchild. She's always this innocent kid. Just the dynamic of that. So that's, you know, that was pretty much, I picked that as the one to go with. And of course, you know, they were all on board. And uh, just did it. But then, you know, that, that was a small budget. So to try and avoid the curse of the Justice League curse, we'll call it, you know, just the fact that, like, there's just, too many characters for the amount of money we have, you know? It's like when you, when you get them, I mean, just jamming them all into a helicopter, that was enough. <laughs> just Fairchild and Grunge and Roxy, you know, <laughs> with a pilot is enough. And, and also, in, even in the comic, I always felt that, like, um, the writing and this the relationship between Grunge and Roxy and, and Caitlin was the strongest, and then you throw in, you know, Lynch on top of that, and uh, that's, that's, a good, that's a good crew. But, of course, at the end of the movie, they steal, you know, they get away with the other gen characters. So Burnout yeah. and uh, Rainmaker were playing, you know, for the sequel, they were planned on coming in. I mean, you know, it's like I don't know how the story would have worked, but we would have gotten them in there.
0: And and that hurts knowing that that didn't get made because of everything that because it's like, like you said, this was it was it was a big it was a hit internationally. There's no denying that, and it would have I would have loved to have seen that because there's so much that's done with the characters after that initial miniseries, and it have been so cool just to have those ideas in the animation because you look at Campbell's artwork and it's like ready made. Like the the way yeah. he visualized things. It's yeah. Well, we
1: had to. Sim- I had I couldn't go. Although Jeff did, you know, he did do like character designs for us. But I had to. It's like, literally, the, you'd have the problem of Jeff's drawings, and he's, um, you know, he's of course, gotten older and he's like more mature now, so his and his artwork is more mature. Um, but back then, it would be very very hard for an animator to animate those characters, you know? So they had to be streamlined and simplified and, uh, you know, made animatable, especially with the limited resources that we had, you know, because it was, it was, uh, I originally intended to budget it kind of like a series, well, kind of like the same budget that was for *Master of the Phantasm, but it was done for considerably less, (laughs) a lot less. I think, I think, But I had a great office in Santa Monica, you know, which after the earthquake in 92, um, you could get uh, offices and stuff in Santa Monica for a song because Santa Monica really did get socked along with Northridge and everyone. So really good deal on this office. It was only a block from the beach. Um, So we, you know, including the office and everything, we spent just a little over two million dollars for the whole production for everything, you know? Oh, wow. yeah, so it was, it was pretty small, pretty small budget. And there's even at that, you know, I, I, I really wish that I could have gotten a lot more retakes than I had. <laughs> I mean, and, and just like another color correction pass. And especially with digital technology now, it'd be very easy to do just to pump it up, you know, just to pump up the look of the film and using some, and another pass passive post-production would be great. But, Whatever it is, what it
0: is. I will say though, with with the, like with with the cast and the work that was done, because you look at that, you look at the cast and it's it's crazy because you had like all you you had, of course you had uh, John Delancey, you had Mark Hamill, you had Corey Burton, but then you had Alicia Witt and Mm -hmm. Flea and Elizabeth Daly, Cloris Slayman, like you couldn't really and even like small roles you had like Phil Lamar and Dave Fenoy and Jennifer Mm -hmm. Hale, and it's like you couldn't ask for like a bigger Voice cast. Yeah, no, the, you know what the, I mean? the voice,
1: the, the, I mean, I got I got the actors I wanted, pretty much, you know. Uh, it, it, I got no, I mean, it's like uh, Jack Fletcher brought in John DeLancey, and I'm just, I, it's like I didn't even, I didn't think we, you know, it didn't even dawn me that I could get him. I knew I could get Mark Hamill because I knew that he's, he's into comics and stuff, and this is like one thing where I actually wanted Mark Hamill to just use Mark Hamill's voice you know it's yep. kind of a grown up Luke Skywalker but
0: <laughs> it's like if Luke Skywalker yeah. just became a psycho
1: <laughs> no yeah. it's 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 a really nuanced performance and uh yep. lauren lane is like oh my god what a great natasha kind of evil villain she's just so good which was another reason why i didn't bring in bliss was because we only have room for one natasha <laughs> you know i mean it's i mean it's just like a, repeating the character in, in like a two-hour movie, it's like just too many people, too many characters.
0: And I think, in a lot of ways, considering the well, we'd we call them undertones, but they're blatant overtones. Yeah. Uh, with um, with uh, b- with uh, bliss and threshold, it's like maybe maybe that maybe that little bit of swift. It's glad that we didn't have yeah. to deal with that. Directly. <laughs> yeah.
1: I think there's enough of a relationship between. Uh, I thought the relationship was there between uh, Lauren Lane and. Uh, mark hamill i think that i think that was like more of the latent romance going on there than anything
0: i mentioned spider-man earlier and i was actually talking to a friend of mine before we did Mm -hmm. the show he's a huge spider-man fanatic like he he actually he runs a show called san diego comic fest and brought Machio makrasiski to talk about his run on spider-man and i i love spectacular spider-man i will I love the 90s series. I love all the other series, but Spectacular, for me, is the best Spider-Man
1: cartoon ever produced. And not because I worked on it. Because I think that um, Greg Weissman... Greg Weisman is one of the greatest guys you ever get to work with, and one of the worst. (laughs) Because he has these giant interlocking storylines where all the characters are interlocked. And uh, one moment for Sage is like one moment in like a previous episode means so much to what happens 10 episodes down. And there's no way you as a board artist or as a director know this. And (laughs) it's, it's like, it's great. And it's like, and it's really rough at the same time. But uh, what, what Greg brought to it, that, that Peter Parker, I thought was, well, uh, the latest Spider-Man in the Marvel universe is pretty much that guy, the teenage, you know, going back to the teenager and, yeah. uh, that take by Greg on, um, and Vic, Vic Cook, too. It's like, I, Vic wasn't really the writing guy. He was the directing guy. And, I, and I'd worked with Vic before at Deke. Um, and what they came up with was a really great reinvention for the new generation of kids and it it really was a really i mean some of my favorite stuff was what takes place in the high school you know and i got to storyboard and do like a whole football game where flash gets his knee creamed uh that was actually some of the most fun stuff on top of like doing like the first time that i got to draw like the introduction of the green goblin that's another dream come true and I thought that Green Goblin was the Green Goblin for me. And I really liked the Sam Raimi Green Goblin, but I think that Green Goblin really was cool. You know, he was a real, you know, in the whole thing where he's taking over the whole underworld, which the Green Goblin never really did in the comics and stuff. It did in the series. I thought was, that was really good. But that um, Dr. Octopus was my favorite Dr. Octopus. The one where he starts out as the nebishy I mean, just like the Nevishy brilliant scientist, but the nebishy little guy that's working for Osborn, you know. They kind of did it in the second uh, Spider-Man, but that cartoon version of him I thought was very good. And uh, Jennifer Coyle, who is doing, like, the Harley Quinn show right now, she gets my vote as, like, uh, the best director on that series because I really liked that origin of uh, Doc Ock. It had a lot of heart to it. And you really felt for the guy. When he turns into the villain, you still feel bad for him, you know? (laughs) I thought that was a great cartoon. That was was probably my favorite episode, other than my own episodes. (laughs) I'm kidding. One thing I just want to say about Spectacular Spider-Man is that it's like, here's Peter Parker. He's away. He becomes Spider-Man during the summer. You know, he's Spider-Man all summer. Then he comes back to high school. Yeah, it's going to be better this time. Hey, nerd. You know, no, it's no different at all. And he can't tell anyone that he's Spider-Man. It's like he doesn't mean anything in high school. And uh, I thought that was just awesome. And the thing that I liked about the storylines, and it was difficult to do, but it's great at the same time, is that it progresses from September through November through October, (laughs) you know, through December. And by the time you get to uh, Craven, it's winter and there's snow on the ground and, you know, and it's... And the episodes are all chronological like that. And um, they rarely in a cartoon will they play with the seasons like that. So it, it is like going to school, you know, because you go to school, you start out. Not now, because everyone's like stuck at home. But you start out in the fall. You know, it's still kind of hot in the early September. And then you go through the fall and then you go through winter and then you go through spring. You know, and and there's all these events in high school that happen, and that that all happened in Spider Man. It was great.
0: I think like with with Wiseman. I mean, anyone who's watched Gargoyles knows how much a, of a perfectionist he really is. And like seeing all those aspects of it, like the whole idea of the weather. I need to rewatch a show because I that I never even touched on that when I watched it the first time, and I need to rewatch it yeah. now and look for that. But there's so many th- there's so many things like that that carry through and really make the show that much more mature and intelligent. I remember there was, there was a ton of articles going around when the Venom episodes came out and they said, okay, this, this children, the show, uh, this cartoon by Sony did a better job telling the Venom story than the, in a more mature job telling the story of Venom than a yeah. like $200 million movie. And I always thought it was great to yeah. see that.
1: Kind well, of and also that Eddie Brock that's in the dynamic of like, well, here's the example Eddie Brock is introduced, you know, right off the bat, pretty much, you know. He's a character we know um, long before the symbiote, like, you know, shows up. And the thing is, is that in this one, in the Spectacular Spider-Man, which I thought was really great, was that, you know, Eddie Brock is pretty much addicted to the Venom outfit. He's pretty much addicted to being with Venom. You know, it's not a happenstance thing. Although, you know, it's like, yeah, Spider, and it's like, and I liked it. And as far as the Peter Parker being an asshole when he's, you know, attached to the Venom, worked much better. It was more sensible in the cartoon, I thought, in Spectacular Spider-Man. I liked how he did it. And I think it was another Jennifer episode. I think she directed the one, which I really loved. <laughs> it was like where there's this this big fight with God, who is he fighting with? And it was like it was like you know with the Rogues Gallery, and here's Spider-Man, and he's just kicking ass. And then it flashes to the next day, and Peter Parker gets up out of bed, and he's like, "Oh man, holy!" Oh, <laughs> it's like he was asleep the whole time. He doesn't know what he did. He's like, "Oh my back!" <laughs> I thought that was brilliant. It was, like, he, it was like he just woke up, and I think he had a black eye too. He's like, what, what, what the hell, what, what happened? And he had no idea that he just cleaned up with you know all these supervillains. It
0: it is funny because you mentioned how you know Tom Holland, really in many ways, is the closest that we have to that animated Peter Parker. And there, I was actually rewatching Spider-Man: Homecoming mm-hmm. the other day. It had been a while since i have seen it, and the all the scenes with him and Flash Thompson, the mm-hmm. whole uh, Penis Parker thing. Like I'm watching it, it's like, yeah, because. It's like he's gets to do all this cool stuff. He's not particularly great at it yet. But then like the moment he comes to school, yes. even the kids in the chess club make fun of him. And even they think he's weird. And then the and even the nerdy kid who which with Flash Thompson I thought was was brilliant in how they how they did that with him. Even he calls him Penis Parker on a regular basis yeah. and is literally making songs yeah. out of it. No, and I'm like yeah that's that they, yeah, they, that, they, that they, Peter they
1: should be paying Greg some sort of royalty for that one. Oh well, well, that's the problem yeah. with these characters. You don't own them; <laughs> they already exist, and we're already fans before we ever show up. Yep. So that's how it is.
0: So we've got we've got to talk about um, Onyx Supernox, mm-hmm. the series you did for um, the yes. with the work you did with uh, for Crunchyroll, because this was just really cool. Like I saw it on there, and I'm like, okay, so there's a lot of anime, and I like a lot of what's on there. And then I see this, and I see your, and I see your name attached to it. And I'm like, okay, yeah, no, um, I was well, not expecting
1: this. Well, um, that was I uh, on Stretch Armstrong, um, which again, Vic Cook was the uh, supervising director on uh, Stretch Armstrong, and I was a director on it, and, um, and uh, I hired Sophia Alexander um, as a storyboard revisionist. Like she, we had tests out there and there was like quite a few people, um, that did the tests and hers was the best one, you know? And, uh, so we hired her and she was on my crew as uh starting out as a revisionist, but very quickly, um, we, uh, promoted one of the, one of my board artists, Alan Caldwell to being a director. And then I took Sophia and she had been training as a revisionist for a while, and then I trained her as a board artist. Um, and she became a full-fledged board artist. And after Stretch Armstrong, she went on to other things. But Sophia, who um, comes from Mexico, and she uh, has like this—always had this family, you know, feeling and lineage with like ancient Mexico, you know, her heritage. And um, she came up with this storyline that takes place, you know, at the same time the Roman Empire existed. There's a vast, vast empire in Mesoamerica, you know, down in like from Mexico down through the whole South American continent. Um, Very sophisticated society, you know. And yes, there was sacrifice and all that going on. But to say that the same thing wasn't going on in Europe at the same time is foolish because Frenchmen were like sitting there. The Gauls were, you know, human sacrifice was their main thing too. So anyway, having said that she wrote this really, uh, intriguing action adventure story, um, that takes place in Mesoamerica. And, um, she called me up when she sold her show. She had been doing storyboards over Nickelodeon and uh, cartoon network and stuff. And, all the time she was doing that she was developing this and uh i mean it's it's just a great idea and it has i don't know how much i can say about it right now (laughs) probably not too much but it's uh it's really great it's like the ancient gods are real in this storyline and um it's kind of a cross between a action adventure story and horror and uh but there is like this really big heart to it too. And there is like this really like love is one thing that really ties all the characters together and like takes it all the way through. That's kind of like the tying Lynch is like this group of disparate characters coming together on this one quest to like save mankind. Uh, and actually it's about the survival of mankind and it's and the one character is just this one boy, this one kid. He's gotta be the hero for everyone. He's he represents all of us. And it's it's just it's great. And it's like and I love drawing things and creating, recreating the ancient world. I just love doing that. And it's like the same guys, it's like uh same people that I've worked with before, like Adam Van Wyck, who worked on Spider Man. He's on, he worked on that show as a storyboard artist for me and uh Brandon McKenney, I think I don't know if Brandon Brandon may have worked on Spider-Man god I can't remember Ugh. anyway <laughs> anyway it's like it's it, it, you it's uh I don't know how much I can talk about it because it hasn't come out yet but if you look at the trailer you'll see it it's like it's it's pretty cool and it's not um Crunchyroll does anime style stuff. Like I worked on another show for them that hasn't come out yet, um, High Guardian Spice, and that is really, really kind of pure anime yeah. still. That that's more anime look to it, and it's like really fun characters to draw. But Onyx Equinox is kind of its own baby. You know, it's its own thing. It has its own look. It's it's got anime. It's got anime things to it, but it really has its own look. It, it lives in its own world.
0: See, and I love that because there's so much you can do with animation and when you create and you create a completely unique aesthetic, I mean, some of my favorite, um, some of my favorite people in both animation and comics, I mean, some of my favorite comic artists are people like um, people like Jim Starenko and people like even mm-hmm. like Humberto Ramos. And the things they have in common is that they both have that such identifiable, unique style that you don't really see anywhere else. Yes. Except for the people who were inspired by them <laughs> or, or inspired. Or, yep. Yeah. No.
1: Well, don't even get me started on my inspirations. We'll be here all night.
0: <laughs> well,
1: yes. We can. Well, Sometime. We can do to a future. Show,
0: right. <laughs>
1: Talk <laughs> about my influences. Yep. And boy, they're a lot.
0: I think, I feel like that will just be like just two, just two, two guys just geeking out yeah, for like two yeah. hours and we'll just be fine with it.
1: You know, <laughs> Oh, where would I be without Richard Corbin, or Alex Toth, or Howard Pyle,
0: oh, <laughs> or Hal
1: Foster, or Frazetta? I,
0: I grew up. I grew up. <laughs> All on, the names uh, go on. <laughs> I, I know. I I grew up on I grew up on heavy metal. Like my parents introduced me to it when I was um, thirteen, twelve or thirteen, and I told Stephen Gordon on about yeah. it because he had worked on uh, Fire and Ice, and he said, "Wait, really?" And I said, yeah, I might have been a little too Yes, you were too young. <laughs> and I love that the guy who made fire, who worked on Fire and Ice is telling yeah. me that, yeah, you were probably too young. Oh, well. <laughs> but I'm, I'm like... It obviously... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I no, know you had... I was going to say I know that you have one other, uh, one other project, one other project we've been talking about in pre-production. That's, um, yeah, that's uh, Axolotl um, the
1: Legend. It, uh, it's a story. Yes. I mean, I've, I've just it's in development right now. That's what I'm, I, I've been working on it. Um, but saloon is um, something. Again, I don't know how much I can talk about it, <laughs> but it, it's it, it's a romance, action adventure romance with a touch of. American um Native American uh legend tied to it specifically the Chumash nation so it kind of has that magic um element to it you know with the coyote gods and uh ravens and uh the fox and uh it's a romance between a when we see like a Mexican Chumash boy and a European English girl that comes to the American West. And uh, it's it's going to be really good. <laughs> it's, gonna, it's something that's going to be really good. And it's like, and again, it's stuff that I really like to draw. And it's stuff that I really like to, uh, It's is a story that I think really is worth uh, telling. And um, in animation, you don't get to do these kinds of things too much, sadly.
0: Based off the early production art so far, um, the thing that really strikes me no. immediately is the is the texture, because you see so much animation that they try so too hard to make it clean, try to make it overly yeah, streamlined. Well, no, it, I don't it's, see it's that. Like here. again,
1: it's like I like what, it a lot. Jeez, what have you seen? <laughs> but the thing about it, it's it's in development, um, coming up with images, coming up with the scenarios. I don't know if you're familiar with like Miyazaki, um, but that's kind. That's kind of what I'm oh, yeah, what I'm definitely. trying to do is like I'm just developing it. When I when I come up with images, I'll generally do watercolors and just pencil drawings and um y- you don't want to go straight into like Photoshop and into, you know, cuz it's just it's just it's not organic. It doesn't feel as organic, and especially a story like this, you want to you want to start it out with like just classic Well, even like Pixar, when you see Pixar's development work, it's on paper, you know, that's really kind of there's uh, that's where your thinking goes. And um, this one, especially being a, you know, what would I call it kind of a magical Western? Um, I'm just developing it right now, you know, in an organic way, you know, pencil to paper and uh I'm starting to do watercolors and uh, just coming up with how the characters... And that way you can really feel who the characters are. And, um, well, it's, yeah, it's actually a more romantic way of going about it, you know? It's like <laughs> going straight into the computer would be kind of cold and aloof way of approaching, you know, a Western.
0: The thing I love about the Western genre is there's such a range of stories that you can tell. There's so many classic subgenres that come out of it because in a way like the western mm-hmm. the western itself is a background because you look at movies like little big man and you look at movies like butch cassidy and you look at movies like once upon a time in the west and they yeah. are so different like each movie is completely different and it's like people it's like when people call comic books a genre instead of a medium yes. and i like that's the biggest mistake you can make no because that's not the case at all no
1: i agree with you no no it's so yeah and it's like that's that's yeah there's a few other projects (laughs) it's like in this whole covid thing you know it's like basically what i've been doing is uh development and uh which is not a bad thing and it's also kind of been keeping me sane (laughs) you know but no i I actually i look forward to that one and it's like that that that's going to be a really fun production uh but again it's it's in its early stage, yeah it's in its early stages right now, and it's like and that's you know and it was just like there was just that was just a project that came to me from uh Eric von Eric von Watke um he's you know just like just like a really fun guy and uh you know he just contacted me and <laughs> you know he had this project with the blessing of the Chumash nation by the way. Uh, yeah, no, it is. And it's That'd like, so cool. you know, you, you can't say no to that. No, it's, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's, just, it's really mm-hmm. going to be a really cool thing. And I, I don't want to give the plot away too much right now. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how, I don't know. I don't know no, how, I much be surprised. To be, how, how much I'm allowed to say, but it, it, it'll, uh, yeah, you, you'll, 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 uh, I think it'll just be something, I think it's something that, you know, an audience needs right now, you know, I think it's just a cartoon. It's like the kind of thing, I think it's like one thing about this whole pandemic is that I think that the market kind of needs what Japan has been doing for years. You know what I mean? I think it's, uh, I think. It, need, it, it needs to kind of come back to what we were doing on Batman, the animated series, and people really are not doing anymore, in my opinion.
0: Yeah. It's the, um, it's like, well, like, like, like there's, I mean, there's a few, few scant examples, like the new Young Justice seasons have been fantastic. It's bringing it back to that. But um, yeah, a lot of you, that personality yeah. that, like we said, that texture. It's no. not there yeah. as much anymore. Right? Well, and you. that's why I'm really excited <laughs> about this. Well, let
1: me do some more drawing, and uh, I think you'll even be more impressed.
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So with that, as we bring, as we bring this episode to a close, where can people, where can people um, find you? Well, on this I'm wonderful pretty much, you
1: know, it's like I'm on Facebook, and I've got an Instagram page, which I haven't been paying enough attention to. Um, but I, but I have been really, I I will be releasing stuff that I've been working on as it's, as it's announced. And it's like, I have my own project, uh, that I don't really want to talk about right here. That's, um, but once it gets its, uh, release or it once, once, once deals are happening and stuff, then I will announce it. And, um, there'll be like, it's another thing that people will be jazzed about. It's like a horror <laughs> – again, it's an action horror cartoon film that takes place in the 70s. It takes place in the 70s.
0: That's awesome.
1: And really, that's all I'll say about it right now. It's a little pre- premature. But that one's actually the, – at the, the, the beginning of the pandemic, I finished writing the screenplay and uh, with my partner, Bill. And uh, that is going to be pretty badass. Um, I'll I'll announce it. You'll you'll see when I uh, it will get announced. But right now we're talking to people about you know financing and all that. So it's not really time yet to talk to spill the beans, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. but everyone's gonna love it. It's gonna be badass.
0: I'm excited, man. I, I'm a I'm a I'm a huge horror guy. I mean, I think that probably of all like the apps that I've been watching and using during during this pandemic it's probably mm-hmm. I think shutter the horror the horror yeah. film app is probably the one i yeah, no, like uh,
1: so it's, yeah i'm uh, looking forward to this it's going to be a full on horror uh, action adventure <laughs> kind of like it, it, it's like in and, and by bringing in the action animation action angle on it it actually makes it worth being animation it's not just a horror movie that's just going to scare you yeah, it's actually a horror and action, and the lead character is, um, well, I'll just say that he's as well as being a badass, he's very endearing. <laughs> that's all I'll say. <laughs> okay.
0: okay. I'm looking forward to it. Um, so, so with so with that, as we bring the show to close, I want to thank you again for coming uh, on. Sure, my uh, pleasure. This has been absolutely fantastic, and
1: I hope I, hope I wasn't too. Con- yeah. And for all I <laughs> you out do that. Hope there, I wasn't too confusing or too rambling.
0: Oh, not at all. Not at all. Um <laughs> dude, you're you're the man. You've worked on so much cool stuff. You get to you get to talk all you want. And we that's why we bring that's why we bring somebody like you on here to hear those stories, to hear about that just fantastic work that we've all seen. And um and with that, thank you to everyone for listening to the newest episode of Circuit 42 and have a wonderful night.